So I just want to start off by saying I really do like this episode. There's a lot of little nits in it, but it is still nevertheless a good episode and one I enjoy. Um, so, I, so, so don't take my little nitpicking the wrong way. There's just a couple things that made me go, really? Really? Okay, whatever. I also want to give huge praise to Susie Plaxon, who, God almighty, why did they get her off this show? Susie Plaxon basically really only has three roles on this show. One is Sealar. I already talked about that. Um, in The Schizoid Man. Here as Kalar. And later as Kalar. Three times. Why did they not bring her back? Let me explain what I mean by this a little bit. I've said this so many times that Star Trek has a little bit of an issue when it comes to guest stars. Most television does, really. Star Trek isn't unique to it, but I pay a lot of attention to Star Trek for, for some weird reason. <laughs> My point being, though, that I look at this and I think, damn, that's like, that's a really good guest star. She has charisma. She knows how to roll with it. She knows how to present herself very well. She's good at body language. I've said so many times, I, said, I started saying this over in Voyager, Star Trek, when Star Trek has good guest stars, it shines. Like, I, I want to say the phrase, Star Trek lives on its guest stars, but that's not 100% true. But there's so many episodes where the episode is just torpedoed by bad guest stars and uplifted by good ones. Um, and Susie Plaxon, who plays Keelar, if you're not aware, if I didn't make that clear, she's awesome. She does a great job. I also want to mention really quick that Kalar was not originally the plan, or I'm saying this wrong. So, Sealar was actually introduced back in Schizoid Man as a way to get Sealar to be Worf's love interest. Now, this is again something I mentioned just last week about uh, Tracy Torme. He's good at ideas, because there's a lot of interesting concepts there, and I feel like there's some good stuff you could do with that. Might have even seen Susie Plaxon becoming a more regular character on the show, uh, kind of on the range of, say, Wesley or later on, Ro Laren, you know. Someone who's not in the main credits, but someone who shows up regularly. And I would have been totally in favor of that. But instead, they wanted her to be Klingon. Now, I w this is another one of the situations where I wasn't able to find out the total facts here, because the way the information is relayed is that back when they were first designing Sealar and setting her up for this, they already had plans for Emissary, excuse me, The Emissary, this episode, not to be confused with Emissary over on DS9. <laughs> they, uh, and that means they already wanted Keelar to be Klingon and therefore couldn't have Keel, uh, you know, her play a Vulcan. But that means that they had the construction for the episode, and that the construction of the episode was what mandated she be Klingon, which actually makes no sense, to be as completely blunt as I possibly can. I feel like there's information we're missing here. Let me explain what I mean. The only reason Keelar needs to be Klingon is because this is a Klingon issue we're dealing with, and she is one of the Federation's experts on Klingon affairs and Klingon matters, diplomacy. I'm with that. That makes a degree of sense. But they were so mandatory in the idea that this be a Klingon issue that that it could only be handled by a Klingon diplomat, even though Worf was on on board. Let me explain what I mean just a little bit briefly. Let's say the emissary this episode stays mostly the same in construction, but it's not Kilar. It's well, it couldn't be Sealar because Sealar's a doctor, but you know it's a Vulcan. Let's just pretend that she's now playing another Vulcan. It wouldn't be the first time or the last time that Star Trek pulled that trick. 
So Susie Plaxon is playing Celaria. <laughs> and she's the expert on the Vulcans, and they have their talk, and she and Worf bond, and all that fun stuff happens. Obviously, there'd be specific details that would have to be completely changed, but for the point of the construction of the episode, for the construction of the main plot, why not just have Worf be the one who still comes up with this idea? The Vulcan who comes up with the cold calculus answer of killing them all, which is a very Vulcan thing to do <laughs> under these circumstances, a regrettable thing, but an understandable thing, and have them have their relationship and grow with it and do something with it. I guess I just don't see why she had to be Klingon. Why she had to be half Klingon, for that matter. Now, I know there's the whole their past history thing, but that's actually pretty easy to dance around as well. This is also even more infuriating, considering what they do with Keelar next, which I'm actually not going to talk about here, but those of you who know, it's like, really? <clears throat> Anyways, I'm going to talk briefly about the main plot, because the main plot is bad. Um, I'm I'm sorry. I'm really sorry, because on the face of it, what they did with the main plot was good. See, I have talked for a few thousand times, I need to come up with a lorium for this, of the, actually I think I have come up with a lorium for this, it's called the, the definition of victory. See, if you have a crew who is intelligent and skilled and, and capable on a ship that's amazingly advanced, challenging them is difficult. That is, that is the eternal problem of a writer. Uh, this is something that writers have struggled with for years with many shows, but especially Star Trek. But the really good episodes of Star Trek will challenge the crew in a way by challenging them in a way that defines victory differently. Let me put it to you this way if I'm not being clear. If this was just an episode about there's an old, you know, Katinga cruiser that we need to go take out, then that's bad writing because they could just walk up and probably three-shot it. You know, that's, that's not a particularly difficult fight. But that's not the definition of victory. The goal here is not to kill them. The goal here is to peacefully bring them back into the fold and protect the defenseless colonies in the area. And that's why there's so much speed needed. That's why they did the whole probe thing, which I'll talk about in a minute. So that's good. That makes sense. A couple problems here. So first of all, um, they do the probe thing. Let's just go through this in order. The probe thing makes sense. You know, they, they send a probe, which is capable of going at warp, and we'll get there quicker so that you can get here quicker. That actually makes perfect sense to me. There, obviously, time is an issue. Data flat-out says it's losing six hours. Unlike the whole thing with Samaritan Snare, this is an issue of Keelar being way out of the way, you know, to a point where it would take you know, hours upon hours of warp travel in order to get to them. So we're cutting that distance down at least a little bit. Every little, Every bit of time we could shave off the top helps because those colonists are in danger, right? You with me? So that's good. Um, also, Ron Jones did the music for this episode, and it shows. It always does. But his music towards the beginning, when they're like, oh my god, we've got this mission, there's a probe coming, holy crap. I like that. But then there's the weird fact that they refuse to brief them at all about the situation until the probe is on board. Now, there are ways to explain that. You know, maybe they didn't want to cause a fuss for anybody listening in. Maybe they didn't want the colonists to freak out. I, I'm not actually sure. But for whatever reason, they were trying to keep this on the down low. In my opinion, and they never really address this, the only logical reason for the Federation to be so hush-hush about this is to give plausible deniability in the what is probably at the time considered inevitable circumstance of, of the Enterprise destroying the Tong. 
Now, considering that Keylar has already known about the situation and briefs them and says that's her upfront recommendation, I imagine she already gave that recommendation to the brass back home, which would make sense then for them to go ahead and say, you know, maybe you should go ahead and not and just have this plausible deniability thing with no no public record of this event happening, in order to smooth over relations with relations with the Klingons, right? Thing is, that actually doesn't quite gel with me. What I find to be more likely is what would have, what should have happened is the Federation would contact the Klingons and say, "Hey, uh, one of your own battle cruisers is here." Now they probably did because remember they look up records on this, right? So unless those are just Federation records, I feel that they had to have contacted the Klingon librarians or whatever. STO joke. In order to try and the record keepers for honor, they in order to try and figure out what the hell was going on with these people, they found no records, which means the Klingons either should have or did actually already know about this, and therefore the Klingons most likely would have been like, give them an honorable death, and that's it. You know, let them die in battle. Keelar even says that. By the way, Worf is fully in favor of that as well. It is Picard who puts this foot down on that. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. There's some good stuff of Worf in this episode, so moving on, moving on. So we've got that problem. Um, so we're not really sure why this is being kept hush-hush, except we know why. It's so that the suspense can be maintained for the audience. You can kind of see how the hole is already starting to shine through the episode. Once again, this is one of those things where we could make all this make sense, probably, if we took the time and effort, but it's clear the authors were just kind of like, eh, here, here. We need Keeler on the ship, we need Worf on the ship, and we need a threat of the week. Checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. And they two out of three is not bad, I'll be honest. They also talk about the Tong specifically. This is where things really start to break down. The Tong was launched 75 years ago. I decided to do a little research on that. That would be three years prior to Star Trek The Undiscovered Country. Star Trek VI. So the statement that the Klingons and the Federation were at outright war at that statement in time or at that point in time, excuse me, is not 100% accurate. In fact, it has been noted that the politics of the time were uh, in the, between the Klingons and the Federation were, were very uneasy, but at the same time, both were still in that kind of Cold War status. So, whatever, I suppose. But this, this brings me to my point. They launched this ship, a Katinga battlecruiser, 75 years ago, to go into stasis for 75 years, and then do its super-secret mission. You'll notice the episode never lists what their secret mission is. It goes out of its way to point out that nobody knows what that mission is. Even though, realistically speaking, once we got them to, to stand down, we could just be like, hey, so what's your super-secret mission? Right? Also, it treats, and I, I'm sorry for doing this, but it treats them as if they're an unsolvable dilemma. Getting to them before they get to the colonies, that's good. I like that. I already mentioned that. But the problem is, they say, well, why don't we just shoot to disable? And then they say, no, they will destroy their own ship. You could just disable their shields and beam them aboard. You have the ability to do that. <laughs> right? Like, if you're so dead set on not killing them, that's, that's an option. I mean, God sakes, people. Anyways, anyways, let's, let's just move on from that. Um, <clears throat> so rather than doing anything logical, they basically treat this as if there's two options. Try to talk them down somehow, or kill them all. 
And I, and they keep emphasizing that those are the only two choices, even though I, I've already thought of another one, and I'm sure you guys can think of other options, too. So, oh, oh, keep in mind, they can track them while cloaked. That's really important, because the shields don't work when a ship is cloaked, especially a 75-year-old battlecruiser. So they could have just gone up on the ship while it was cloaked and beamed all of them on board. There we go. We're good. Beam one person over. Maybe Keelar and Worf over here. Take over the ship. Bam! Problem solved. So that's another way I just came up with there to solve it. You get my point. The dilemma just feels very false and kind of tacked on in order to to service or, or to set up the positioning for the actual main plot of this episode. But I'm not done yet. We don't know what these people's mission is, even though we should. I actually have a theory about this I wanted to share with you. I like the idea, because they're like, oh, for the glory of the Klingon Empire. I know that a lot of crazy things happen when you're in a Cold War. Anyone who studied history could state that. I mean, ignoring the most recent one between the Soviet Union and the United States, there have been many Cold Wars between large powers throughout history, and some of those powers do really weird, stupid things during those periods of time. But... Freezing a ship for seven decades in order to try and have them have some kind of significant offense on the enemy in a place that at the time they had no presence in. Remember, they only colonized this area recently. That's why they're so defenseless. Seems a little bit strange, doesn't it? What the hell could their mission be? I know. I, I do have a theory on the matter. <laughs> I think that these are a bunch of people who were... Let's call them a category of unwanteds. Maybe they were criminals. Maybe they were politically enemies of whoever was in charge. I guess Gorkon would have been in charge at this point in time. Um, maybe they are uh, people who are incompetent. Or maybe they're people who are from, who are incompetent but politically connected. In other words, people who, you know, oh, I'm from house such and such, so I, I can't touch them. But. We need to send you on a special mission for the glory of the Empire. You see where I'm going with this? In all sincerity, that is kind of my headcanon of this, because it's the one thing that makes all of this make so much sense. It explains why there's no records of them, because why would you keep records about that? It explains why the Klingons just don't seem to give a crap about this situation. And it would explain why they're 75 years out of date in a piece of crap ship that's been outdated by decades at this point in time, in an area that has no real value or interest to the Klingons. Anyways. <laughs> I also want to mention one other quick thing. Uh, Worf says, I would like not to work on this. And Picard, Picard's actually great in this episode. Um, I mean, Patrick Stewart's usually great, but still. Picard's like, all right, <clears throat> do you have any personal reasons for not wanting to work with her? And Worf says, very bluntly, yes. And then Picard says, do you have any professional reasons for not wanting to work with her? And Worf says, a lot more hesitantly, no. And then there's just this beat where Picard's just looking at Worf. And then Worf says, I withdraw my request. <laughs> that was awesome. It's, it's why I still enjoy this episode. Because even though the, the side plot, the thread of the week plot, is frankly badly constructed and not really that interesting, the dynamics between the characters and all of the Worf and Keelar stuff is just great. Um, I also kind of like how Keelar pretty much, how do I put this? 
she and she and Troy have a couple scenes together, both of which are good. But the first scene has them talking about their their mixed heritage and what that means. If you listen to it, and I, I urge you to either have just watched it or rewatch it, just if if just for this one scene, it's when they're walking down the corridor uh, right after the briefing and before the Kalanetics program, and Troy is basically giving the Starfleet gospel. It's like, you know, these are, they're both a part of you. They're who you are and what you're from. And, you know, Star Trek has that kind of recurring thing about you must be who you are kind of a thing because you are a Klingon, therefore you must be Klingon, right? That's, that's, I've talked about that before. Star Trek has that weirdly a lot. And then it is Keeler's, Keeler basically smacks her down on it, but in a very polite way. She doesn't do it rudely, like someone else I could mention. Instead, she basically just says, it may be a part of me, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. And I like that. One of the things I like most about Keelar is that she has good efficiency of characterization. We get a fairly large perspective on this person as a character, despite her extreme rarity of appearance. And so she has more of an impact than she otherwise would. Remember, she's only in two episodes, really. Think about that. So then... Um, there's, there's a scene where the two have a yelling match. Good body language, of course. Really good stuff. She smashes the thing. Troy comes in. Troy is surprisingly... How do I put this? Effective. I know that sounds weird, but at this point in Star Trek, they hadn't really started using Troy properly yet, in my blunt opinion. So this is a, this is a good example of them actually using her properly. She comes in, and she's like, let me guess, you're sensing my emotions. Yes, also the glass... And yet the way she says that, you can almost tell that Troy probably had been detecting her rage from across the ship and beelined for her to try and deal with it, to try and help her. And I like it because it makes sense personally and professionally. Troy obviously has already bonded a little bit with Keelar, their sh the shared heritage thing, like I mentioned earlier, and obviously cares about her to some extent or another. Troy is a caring person. But she also has a job to do on the ship she serves on, and she would like to maintain the function of that ship as best as possible. So for both reasons, personally and professionally, she goes to deal with this. And that's why she's there right then when the, when the crash happens. You can't tell me she was just accidentally in the area. So then she wanders in and it's like, hey, maybe you should go to Kalanetics. That way, you, personally, can get this stuff out and I, professionally, can keep my ship safe. And I like how she just kind of, she says it with a smile, but you can just feel the steel under there. So credit for that. And I'm going to relate that to another scene. It happens much, well, pretty much right after this, but there's a scene where Worf goes under the bridge, and he is obviously surly. And I don't mean like the way Worf normally is. That's actually not surly. That's just Worf being Worf. No, I mean, roar! You can just hear the roar burrowing under there. Have you ever heard Michael Dorn roar? It's actually a great experience. And so he's down there, roar! And then Picard pulls him out, Lieutenant. That's all he says. He just says, Lieutenant. Walks over to the side of the bridge. And Worf's like, right, of course, of course. Yeah, again, and the Picard says... <clears throat> and once again, Picard is very polite and calm and pleasant. He doesn't actually say much. He just kind of says, you know, I, I think you needed... I, I feel fine. I am ordering you to go relax. And then there's this, this quiet... Again, you can feel the steel there surrounded by the silk. It, it's, it's a very wonderful presentation. <laughs> And I mention it as well, because later on, Worf has a wonderful quote. Uh, people 
talk much but say little. It's, that's paraphrase, because the whole quote is like, you know, in my experience, people use humor in order to blah, 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 blah. But his phrase of talking much but saying little is completely contrasted by the people he has great respect for, like Picard. Let's examine that earlier scene in a little bit more detail. Do you have any professional problems with this? Yes. Or excuse me, do you have any personal problems with this? Yes. Do you have any professional ones? No. And that's the end of the discussion. He, sa he, he talks very little, but he says much. Worf himself actually does this this entire episode, and it's one of the things that makes it a highlight. Everything Worf says is very efficient and communicates a great deal. It kind of gets across his mindset overall, that I must do the best I can. This efficiency, this duty, this responsibility is all upon me. And thus we get more characterization of Worf in general. Before we get to more of the Worf stuff, I do want to kind of talk about two other small little nitpicks. It's actually one nitpick, but it's just... So they go to Impulse to scan for this ship. Why? The, 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 the thousands, if not millions of magnitudes difference between Impulse and Warp is something that I really feel needs to be overemphasized in this case because they sent Keelar here in a damn probe to save hours. Why are they scanning at Impulse? Then, shortly thereafter, <laughs> Data calls up, says, hey, we have them at extreme sensor range. Direct quote. And that was at the 34 minute and 20 second mark. And I'm like, okay. Then the, the episode continues, and then at the 35-minute and 4-second mark, the Katinga ship, fire, the Tong, fires on them. What? <laughs> Extreme sensor range. Oh, they're in firing range. This is a ship that can detect things from multiple light years away while at warp. Anyways, I'm just going to leave that there. I do, and one final thing about the threat of the weak plot, I do like the fact that the Tong is never a threat to the Enterprise, and it's never treated as one. They're like, alright, fire, no damage. And later on they fire again, no damage. I do like that. I do like how they emphasize that this 75-year-old piece of junk is not a threat to them, because it shouldn't be. <sighs> Anyways. <laughs> so... Um, let's get to the Worf stuff. For all the many reasons I like Keelar and Susie Plaxon, her charisma is the biggest and most obvious reason. But another one I think that needs to be mentioned is that she matches Worf. I don't mean she tetrises him. I actually don't think that's true. Although there is a lot that the, about the two's personality that complements each other, in my opinion. But what I mean by that is at no point in time do I feel that she is inferior to or superior to Worf. I find that she is his equal, and there's something engaging about that to me personally. I find that too often that fiction kind of has one person in a relationship, especially a romantic one, being clearly the load, you know. Um, and in other times, that they try to overcompensate that by making the, the, them just be better at like everything than the person they're romanticizing. But in this one, the, the, the romance kind of works better, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but I really feel like the romance works better between the two because they are so obviously at each other's level. Intellectually, emotionally, personally, in terms of their competence in their jobs, and in terms of how well they can wield a sword. At every level, the two of them are right there with each other, and I really like that. Now I'm going to take a side moment before I gush even more about this and talk about the holodeck. 
You know how much I didn't like Manhunt? I found something else to complain about Manhunt in this episode. <laughs> I know! Because in Manhunt, Loxana Troy just casually walks on board the holodeck. Riker and Data I can buy. They're high-ranking officers of the ship, literally the first and second officer, looking for their captain on ship's business. Loxana is a guest on board the Enterprise with, at most, at best, ambassadorial, you know, privileges or whatever. What is it with Federation ambassadors being jackasses? That's a thing even into DS9. That was a thing in TOS, too. Anyways. So, she just walks in casually. Keep in mind, Picard is there specifically to avoid her. So no effort is made to say, computer, hide my location. No effort is made to say, computer, do not allow entrance except on ship duty. She just waltzes right in. And I was reminded of that because in this episode, Kilar is doing her thing and Worf just waltzes right in. And this is not the first or even the fourth time this has happened. There's just this recurring trend of absolutely no value of privacy when it comes to the holodeck. This will actually become a major issue in a later episode. And, and in fact, a frankly embarrassing issue. This actually is a huge issue in Voyager when they completely violate the Doctor's privacy with regarding this. I mean... <laughs> do, people, do, do, do they not know what locks are? I, I don't understand this. This is just such a weird thing to exist in any setting. I don't understand it. I mean, even in the neutral zone, they give like the most ham-fisted explanation for why there's no locks on the communications panel, which is also a dumb explanation, by the way. But don't tell me that applies to everything. I know that Starfleet security is literally a joke. Like, you just have to say Starfleet security, and people are like, <laughs> but yeah, come on. Anyways. So back to, back to gushing. So. <clears throat> oh, nope, nope. I want to I geek out about one more thing, too. I'm sorry. It's about the holodeck. I know, I know. What would have happened if Keelar had hit Worf with her sword? Answer me that question. Now, those of you who are thinking about it, and I applaud you, you probably realize just how complex of a question that actually really is. Is that sword replicated, or is that sword a holographic projection? How does the system know whether or not to make it replicated or projected? Now, I mentioned earlier about the, the concept of presets, of, of templates, of, of defaults. It is possible that since this is Worf's program, that that is actually a sword, replicated sword, and that the safeties are off. And yet at the same time, usually that kind of a thing requires some kind of access. You know, you can't just say, run this program, and then the safeties automatically go off, right? There's no indication. In fact, we actually find later, I can't remember the episode, please forgive me, but there's a later episode where it's like, this will turn the safeties off, are you okay? And they need, like, like command clearance to do this. Oh, it's Descent. It's Descent with Data and Geordi. And so... You know, they go ahead. There's, there's actually some security involved turning the safeties off. So that would imply to me that the safeties are on. Which to me implies she has a holographic sword and it would just like slice through him and do nothing. But how does it know to do that? Like, at what point is the program sufficiently aware of the fact that that's about to intersect him? I suppose it depends on how, like, what I envision in an ideal circumstance is the sword would start the, the, this is, remember, not a real replicated sword, a holographic sword, would start to hit him, and so he would feel the initial impact, but then because of the speed of which, at the rate at which the computer is 
processing data, it would immediately change it to be either fully holographic or just remove the sword entirely, one of the two, to preserve the safeties. Because it's simply too easy for that to cause damage otherwise, even to yourself, actually. It would also imply that the computer is basically always keeping track of the, uh, let's call it the health state of people on the holodeck. But that brings up another question, like what if someone falls? There's so much I could say about this. I'm going to leave that alone for now. I don't want to geek out too much more about the holiday because we haven't even gotten to Barclay yet. <laughs> so Worf comes on board. Worf violates her privacy. And she says, that's eh, okay. And he says, computer, level two. And the way he says it is great. I just want to give so much praise. Michael Dorn and Susie Plaxon have amazing chemistry together. And the two of them act off each other brilliantly. And I also want to give some credit to Cliff Bull. Now, I've talked about him before. He's a good director. He's not my favorite, but he's a good director with some, some good episodes and some eh episodes across you know, a, a decent chunk of Star Trek. I've, I've mentioned him before. I'll mention him again in the future. But I mentioned him here because he came up with the bleeding from the hands thing for Klingon mating. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, why is that significant? Because this is the first time ever that I'm aware of not counting the animated series, which I'm not that familiar with, that Klingons physically hurting each other as part of their romantic entanglement was actually a thing. If you don't understand the significance of that, that will be further codified and expanded upon throughout the course of Star Trek, to the point where it will become a thing where uh, Jadzia Dax and Worf are literally damaging each other because of their intimate relations. And they're both okay with that, I guess. We'll talk about that when we get there. But my point being... All of that stems from this. It's something I mentally think of as Star Wars effect, even though it's a kind of a misnomer, which is why I don't actually make a, a lorium called that. The Star Wars effect is when you insert one tiny little thing as a bit of flavor, and over time in a long-standing franchise, that one little thing becomes the basis for a much bigger thing. I mean, what the hell was Kessel back in A New Hope, right? So... um The two of them talk about what they want to do with their relationship. Obviously, there's some issues there. Obviously, the two have already mated, based on the way they talk about it. I like how they never flat out talk about their past. They just imply it through their talk, through their interactions and how they mention what they've already been through. That's good stuff. I also... I like how both of them are so emotionally entangled in, their, in each other that they are both completely wrong about each other. I'm going to try really hard to explain this, because it makes perfect sense in my head. Worf presents himself as what he believes to be the Klingon ideal. In fact, Kielar actually flat out says, Worf, you are the perfect Klingon. Do me a favor and remember that phrase. I'm not going to talk about that whole topic yet. But I, but I do have a, a, a concept called the Worf effect, and it's not the other one. We'll discuss it much later, when, probably when we get to... Uh, say about redemption, I'm thinking. But either way, just remember that in the back of your mind. Moving on. So Worf... Uh, no, it'll be earlier than redemption. It just occurred to me. It'll be much earlier than redemption. Anyways, so Worf, you know, you're the perfect Klingon. And so he presents himself as someone who we have to get married because we had sex. Let's just say that as bluntly as we can. Because that is what you do. Now, that is the reasoning he presents. He says, it's for honor, it is, it is what is expected, it's our traditions. That is not what Worf means. Worf 
is actually a hell of a romantic. I find that endearing about him, if I might be so bold. Worf is the kind of guy who really does believe in, you know, one mate for life, long-time love, real love, you know, and the kind of passion and caring and commitment that that involves. And we see that in this episode. But he is so distraught over this that he can't present that. He can't just bluntly say, I love you, please spend the rest of your life with me. In fact, the way he says it at the end of the episode is basically perfect. He says, and I quote, I wrote this down, I will not be complete without you. Saying a lot with little words, or little talking, I should say. So his rigidity on this matter pushes her away because that means this means nothing. Like, if you're just going to want to marry me because of, of tradition or whatever, then that has no meaning to her, and that's not what she wants. But, of course, she is just as emotionally entangled. So she pushes right back and, again, in the wrong direction. Uh, and her, her direct quote is, I thought I jotted it down. I, I really did. There it is. It was glorious and it was wondrous, but it meant nothing is what she says to him. The idea being that it was just fun between two people, which is fine, but is not what she thinks. She is lying to him about this because she is presenting the resistance. This is rigidity versus resistance, what we've got going on here. And she was willing to do this with him if she believed he was doing it for the right reasons, and he was willing to do it with her if he believed she was doing it for the right reasons. And it is not until the end of the episode when responsibilities tear them apart that they both come to terms and honestly communicate with each other that they both meant it. That's part of why I give so much praise to these actors, because they manage to get across a great deal of nuance and, appropriately, meaning, relevance to the way they interact with each other. So... The episode kind of concludes. Worf bluffs. He does a great job of that, by the way. He looks great in the full Klingon regalia. God, I want to buy that costume now. I'm not even kidding. If I had the money and I could get a good version of it, I would totally do that. I'd wear it on the show, and then I'd get made fun of for making costumes, and I'd stop wearing it. But <laughs> but I'd still do it that once. And I love the way he just, just smacks them down. All right, listen. You are going to do this because I am a Klingon commander. And he acts like a Klingon, or at least how he perceives a Klingon should. Again, perfect Klingon, remember that. And he's like, well, you know, you're going to do this. Commander Kilar will go to deal with you. Now, that's cool and all, but once again, what the hell is Kilar's job going to be like for the next three days? She has to spend three days dancing around the fact that they just lied their teeth off to an entire crew of Klingons who are probably going to be hostile about that fact. They may have been in a piece of crap battle cruiser, but that's not a problem anymore since she's now on their ship. What's their reaction going to be when the Klingons actually link up with them? Ah, of course, these are not answered. Final note, and I do have one final note here. I like Worf in Command. I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on, but even watching this as a kid, and especially watching this now, Worf slides easily into the position of Command. And basically, he come, he's a good red shirt. And I know what you're thinking. Well, red shirts? No, not, not that kind. In, in TNG, he, he, red shirt is the command track, right? And he comes across as that. I like that presentation. And I like it so much that I imagine I'm not the only one. Because Worf eventually does get command. And it does fit so naturally and seamlessly that it's, it's an amazement to me that they never did anything like that before.
Anyways, I don't have much else to add to this. It was an enjoyable an enjoyable episode, despite the problems. I hope you've enjoyed my discussions, and I'll see you guys next time.